As we've seen in our study of the book of Galatians, Paul comes in chapter 5 to the foundation of his understanding of history and what it means to be a Christian. It's been called the already but not yet. We affirm that something has in fact happened. And it is not only the coming of Jesus into the world, but our union with Jesus, the crucified Messiah, and the coming of his spirit into our lives. But there is more to come. And so we have the already, but there is the not yet. I think every human being senses that lack of completeness, as well as the frustration that incompleteness brings. The final words have not been spoken. Things are not the way they should be. But that one day things will be made right. Living when and where we do and being affected as well as infected by the surrounding culture, we seem to want things and we want them now. And when we don't get them now, our view of reality may in fact change. This past week in the car I was listening to Neil Young, uh, his double album uh, Decade, and his song uh, in particular called Soldier from 1972. And it has this sense to it, particularly in the second verse. Jesus, I saw you walking on the water. I don't believe you. You can't deliver right away. I wonder why. And, And there it is. One refuses to believe because deliverance of whatever kind, whatever kind has not yet come. It hasn't come right away. And yet at the same time, we know that things are not the way they should be. That even if we got what we wanted right away, it doesn't change the fact that our time on this planet is limited and death comes to us all. To contrast Neil Young's lyrics, I thought of Psalm 20, a wonderful psalm in which we have a series of sort of prayer requests, if you wish. May the Lord do this for you. And let me read to you part of it. May the Lord answer you when you are in distress. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and grant you support from Zion. May he remember all your, all your sacrifices and accept your burnt offerings. May he give you the desire of your heart and make all your plans succeed. May the Lord grant all your requests. It's, it's a wonderful psalm. And a real contrast between the stark unbelief and skepticism that we find in Neil Young's song. Yet, if all of these things were to happen, if all of these prayer requests, if you wish, were to be answered, we still have to acknowledge that we are human and our time here is finite. We will not be here indefinitely. But we will continue to have existence. There is more yet to come. And so we have the already, what we have now, and yet there is the not yet, what is yet to come. In the early verses of chapter 5, Paul tells the Galatians to do three things in the light of this reality of already, not yet. First of all, stand firm. That is the already. Already Christ has come into history. Already he has fulfilled the law. Already we are united with him in faith. Already we are the children of God. Already the Spirit lives within us. And already we call God Abba, that is Father. At the same time, the second thing he tells him is to wait through the Spirit, to wait for the not yet. He says, by faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. There is more to come. So stand firm in the already and yet look ahead through the Spirit for what is yet to come. 
And then the third thing he tells them is live lives of faith expressing itself in love. This is in verse number six. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So I mentioned before, in verse number five, we find hope. And in verse number six, faith and love. These three we find throughout Paul's writings, faith, hope, and love. Faith deals with the already, hope with the not yet. Love deals with both. It is only love that will be with us through eternity. Because once we are in the presence of God, there will be no need for faith, no need for hope. But we will be people who love, who love God. As we saw last Sunday, Paul, in what could almost be a parenthetical passage from verses 7 to 12, gives a quick series of metaphors to make his case that the Galatians have been sort of short-circuited, have been cut in on by these men from Jerusalem. So we saw he begins on the running track using the metaphor of athletics, then moves to the courtroom, to the kitchen, back to the courtroom, to the arena of proselytizing, then to a place of execution, and then finally to a temple for self-mutilation. For all this, Paul is confident that the Galatians would stay on course. If you look at verse number 10, I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. So we saw last week in the final metaphor, in verse number 12, Paul writes one of his most shocking statements. And there is a temptation to read this statement almost as a hysterical, almost semi-hysterical reaction to the damage done by the men from Jerusalem. At the, the staccato series of metaphors, we see the final metaphor almost as an exclamation mark. And in fact, some English translations have supplied that to, because there is no punctuation in the original text. But in going through this and thinking on it, I suspect that this is not the case. And I'm reminded of the story in the Old Testament of when Jonathan confronted David over his committing adultery with Bathsheba and covering it up by murdering her husband, Uriah. I don't know if you remember, but Nathan comes to David and he says, I have a problem, I have a judicial problem. There are these two men, one was rich and one was poor. The rich man had a lot of sheep. The poor man only had one lamb, and it was like part of the family. It slept with the family. Well, the rich man had a visitor come into town, and rather than killing one of his own sheep, he took the lamb from this poor man and he killed it and that's what he served his guest. David is outraged at this. And he says the man deserves to die. He demands that the man be punished. And then Nathan responds, you are the man. Now, many people believe that Nathan shouted. And in fact, if you look online and, and type that in and look for pictures, almost all the pictures, Nathan is pointing the finger at David. I suspect that was not the case. One didn't usually point his finger at the king. And David is, in fact, all worked up. He's like, the man deserves to die. I think far more effective would be to simply look down and say, you're that man. You're the man. In the same way, I think Paul has made his point. If you think you can win God's favor by cutting off a little bit of your body, a piece of flesh, then why not cut off more? In fact, why not just cut off the whole business? And rather than it sort of being this bombastic thing, I think it's very calm and quiet. Paul makes the point, 
that it is not through circumcision that one gains God's favor. His logic, I think, is so clear. It's not frenzied or frenetic. It is calm, and more than that, it is right. In our passage today, Paul returns to the theme with which this chapter opened, that is, freedom. If you look at the beginning of chapter 5, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free, or has set us free. Now, beginning at verse 13, Paul continues in that vein. Look, if you would, at verses 13, 14, and 15. You, my brothers, were called to be free. Do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. Beginning with freedom, I'd like to look at three themes that are interconnected here and really sort of open up the rest of this chapter and really the rest of this epistle to the Galatians. It begins with freedom and then continues with love and then we will look at the matter of the flesh or what the NIV has as a sinful nature. Let's look at freedom. It's something we've talked about a number of times this year, particularly as we went through the book of James. In verse 1, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. In verse 13, you, my brothers, were called to be free. With what Paul has written about the law thus far, we might see see the law as a negative thing. And now that he's written about freedom, one might think that we can do what we want to do. Since the law is seen in such negative terms, it's always telling you what to do. And now that we have been set free, one might have the impulse to think, I can do what I want. I have been given freedom in Christ. I can do what I want. But this is because we see freedom from one perspective. That is freedom from something. Somebody has a bunch of rules and you say, I am free from those rules. I don't have to keep those rules. And so I am free to do whatever I want to do. This is not the case. Peter writes about this in his first epistle. He says, live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Slaves, I I thought we were free. I thought we were free people. We are free to live as God intended. Paul writes about this to the Romans in chapter 6. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. But living when and where we do, if you tell somebody they are free and then you sort of say, but, then all of a sudden it's like all bets are off. For us, in this culture, freedom is all-encompassing, that I get to do whatever it is I want. Individual freedom has become the non-negotiable of our culture. In a recent book, and I've read this to you in the past, one author notes that the modern person feels himself to be disengaged from the world around him, rather than intrinsically related to it by family, tribe, birthplace, vocation, and so forth. So in our time, people see themselves as separate, apart, individual, with no connection anywhere. He is expected to forge his own destiny by an exercise of choice. He is concerned less about what is right than what his rights are. The world for him is just a neutral space for his actions, his free choice, and the greatest mysteries lie not outside but within himself. So we see ourselves as being put here, and now we get to do whatever it is that we want. 
And so even parents now struggle with the matter of disciplining their child. If I, if I restrain my child, maybe I will damage his or her personality. We see ourselves as being free to do whatever we want to do. As I said, in our culture, freedom is the highest value. People see it as the absence of restraint. It is individual choice that matters. Traditionally, people were born into this world with a whole set of obligations that came with being born into the world. Family relations, your parents, your grandparents, your siblings, extended family members, your neighbors, your fellow citizens, the religious community. Now, you could choose to not be faithful to these relationships, but you could not change the fact that these obligations, in fact, were there. Again, living when and where we do, freedom is seen as freedom from obligation. You're not the boss of me. You can't tell me what to do. In this letter that Paul writes to the Galatians, the picture that Paul paints is one in which the Galatians have been set free from their pagan past. And the Jews are freed from the claims of the law, that you have to keep the whole law. But that's only a part of the story. Freedom is not merely freedom from something. It is freedom to something. We are free to do something. It isn't that I don't have to do anything, but that we are free to do something. So if you look at verse number 13, do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. Freedom is not getting to do what you want. It is doing what you ought to do. That is true freedom. And what we ought to do is to love one another. This is the second theme here. What we ought to do is love. Specifically, to serve one another in love. You will remember in verse number 6, right before the explosion of metaphors, he says, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And then after the metaphors, Paul writes, serve one another in love. The repetition cannot be ignored. We have, we have to pay attention. It is intentional. I think it would be helpful for us to go back to chapter 2. That famous verse, chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And just to review a bit, it's been a while since we were in chapter 2. I don't think Paul's simply throwing in this bit about that Jesus loved us and gave himself for us. Um, Paul is defining for us what love is. It is seen in the person of Jesus. It is the giving of oneself. Paul's already mentioned this at the very beginning, in the very first sentence of the letter. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse number 4 who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from, this, from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. It is this self-giving, it is this love, <coughs> that has made redemption possible. <coughs> because of his self-giving, we are united with him. We are sons of God. We have the Spirit of God. But there's something else, although not mentioned here. We find it now in our passage, chapter 5. 
If Christ gave himself for us in love, to give us a new identity, for us to be united with him, then guess what? If we are united with Christ, we should be marked by love as well. Paul mentions it in chapter 2, right after talking about the confrontation with Peter. Peter, if you loved these Galatian believers, these Gentile believers, you would not have done what you did. We are to be marked by self-giving love. For us as Christians, our identity in many ways begins with love, the giving of oneself. It's a recurring theme. And in many ways, I think, maybe just so familiar to us or so sentimentalized that we forget, particularly what Paul says here, that we are to serve each other in love. It isn't just have this sort of this nice, warm, fuzzy feeling about each other, but that we are, in fact, to show our love. But it isn't something that comes naturally to us, as we'll see in a few minutes. And so we find Paul writing about this time and time again to the Corinthians and 1 Corinthians, who were not resting their identity on the law, the way that the men from Jerusalem were, but rather in their knowledge. And so when it came to the matter of food being offered to idols and eating it, the Corinthians said, we know that all possess knowledge. We know what is possible for us. And Paul responds, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. But the man who loves God is known by God. The key is love. It is something that was sorely lacking in the situation in Antioch when Peter withdrew. It is evident in our passage it was lacking as well. If you look at verse number 15, if you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. The language in this first line is primarily that that was used of snakes and wild animals. When used in a literal sense, it meant biting and devouring. But when used in a figurative sense, it pointed to abuse. And the original sense of this metaphor is, in fact, that this is conduct more fitting of wild animals than it is of Christians who are brothers and sisters in Christ. By the way, if you read through the Psalms, you hear this time and time again, this type of language. Do not not let them think, aha, just what we wanted, or say, we have swallowed him up. In Psalm 22, roaring lions tearing their prey open their mouths wide against me. This is what wild animals do, and when we are not marked by love, this is how we will act. The language of the second line, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other, speaks of annihilation, that nothing will remain. And if there is no love, this, in fact, what this will be the result. Without love, we will destroy each other. But let's go back to verse number 14. The entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. This is familiar enough, but in the context of Galatians, several problems or questions seem to pop up. First of all, one would say, I thought Paul was against the law. In 2.21, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. 
And then in chapters 3 and 4, all the metaphors for the law, the prison guard, the disciplinarian, the guardian, the trustee. Um, I, I thought Paul was against the law. Secondly, I thought Paul said that the whole problem with the law was that no one could keep it. Chapter 3, verse 10, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. So how can Paul be so happy, almost giddy, to tell us that the whole law is summed up in this commandment that we are to love our neighbors ourselves? We should remember that the law was given not as a means to win God's favor. That's what Paul's been trying to say throughout this book. It was given to reveal the nature of God. I am the Lord your God. First commandment, you shall have no other gods. It's to reveal the nature of God. It is also to reveal the nature of what it means to be human. How we are to live God's li- our lives as God intended. It is to reveal, if you wish, the rules of the road. And so if we do things contrary to the law, there will be consequences. In light of the, in light of the previous objection, that no one can keep the whole law, How does Paul expect us to keep this one commandment, the one commandment that sums up the entire law? Well, the answer to this question, in part, is the focus of the next section, in which Paul deals with the Spirit. The first thing that we hear about the Spirit is that the fruit of the Spirit is love. But before we get to that, we come to the third thing. We start out with freedom, with love, and now we look at the flesh. And it is contrasted from here to the end of the chapter with the Spirit. If you are reading from the NIV, the one that we use here in church, the 1984 edition, as I do, you will find that instead of the flesh, we find the phrase, the sinful nature. If you have a newer NIV, by the way, it has the flesh with a footnote at the bottom, the sinful nature. Translation is a tricky business oftentimes, and... In the process of translating, you also interpret. Um, They did that in verse number 12, what they put an exclamation mark, because that's not in the text, but they want to say, you know, Paul was really worked up about this, so let's put that exclamation point there um, so that the reader will understand the force of what Paul was saying. Um, And here, instead of flesh, they put the sinful nature because, well, that's how they interpret it. In my opinion, in in both instances, in verse 12 here and verse 13, I don't think that they've been particularly helpful. So I mentioned earlier, in verse number 12, I don't think Paul was on the verge of losing it. So let's put in an exclamation mark so the reader knows that. I think he was rather calm. I don't think we need an exclamation mark for us to have a sense of what he was saying. But what about the sinful nature? The word that Paul uses in Greek is the word sarx. It has several meanings. One could begin with flesh, that is the physical substance, and from there it could go on to mean the body, although there is another word that is more commonly used for the body. It also goes on to mean that which is mortal, flesh and blood. I don't think that Paul here in this passage uses flesh in a literal sense. I don't think he does, by the way, throughout his writings, but rather he is pointing to something. Let me just say, Parenthetically, before we get into this, um, sort of not a disclaimer, but disclosure. I think, without question, what shapes how you view what Paul means by the flesh 
is shaped by how you view the body. If you see the body as physical and evil because it is physical, then you're going to see Paul as using flesh in a very negative way. Um, I don't see that, though. Because God gave us bodies. We are embodied creatures. It is a part of who we are. To be human is to have a body. But that's not all that there is to us. Thus, I don't think Paul is sort of making a dichotomy or a dualism that on the one hand you have body, and body is bad because it's physical, it's material, and then on the other hand you have that which is spirit or spiritual, and that is good. And so, you know, anything you can touch, anything that is tangible is of the material world, and so it's bad, and anything you cannot touch is just, well, it almost seems normal to us that that which is spiritual is higher, because you can't touch it. And so we would see that as good and the body as bad. By the way, in the weeks to come, we will see two lists. The works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. And there's a temptation and a tendency, uh, depending on how you view the body, to see one list as dealing with actions. This is what the body does. And then the other is with attitudes. This is the fruit of the spirit. And so these are wonderful things that just sort of float up into the heavens. How wonderful it is. There is a tendency to see the physical body as sinful, to see the attitudes as what is important. I think, by the way, if you get a chance, read through the list again, and I think you'll see that this is not the case. It isn't a matter of material versus non-material. Such of you would be dualistic and Gnostic. It would not be biblical. God created the physical world, and when he was finished, he saw that it was good. If the body is bad, why would Paul write what he does? We read it a few minutes ago in chapter 2, verse 20. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We must take care that we do not equate flesh with the physical and the physical alone. There is a physical dimension to it, without question. Okay? Paul is not implying, and we should not think that he is, that the spiritual is what is good. That the spiritual part of our existence is where we have union with Christ. And that, boy, can hardly wait to die and get rid of these, these nasty things, these physical bodies, because they are sinful. If he's not saying that, what is he saying? As this will dominate the rest of this chapter... I want to sort of lay the foundation today for what we'll be looking at in the weeks to come. I think what Paul is speaking of is that which is natural to human nature. That which is uh, natural to mortals, that's us, or to human nature. And after, since we live after Adam and Eve sinned, after the fall, we would say our fallen human nature. But I would argue that if Adam and Eve had never sinned, that they never sinned, there would still be a sense in which the flesh, human nature, is inadequate. We are creatures. We are dependent by nature on God. We require instruction. We require revelation. We've talked about this in the past. In chapter 2 of Genesis, God has to tell Adam what to do. He also has to tell him what not to do. Man just does not intuitively know these things. 
like Adam's like, oh yeah, that's the tree I'm not supposed to eat from. And I'm supposed to name the animals. And, oh, well, yeah, this is really pretty. Uh, these things are revealed to us by the Creator. We are creatures. At the outset, we have a human being with a body, with a human nature, and yet this human being requires instruction and revelation from God as to what he or she should not do and what it means to be human. We've seen in the past that God set up the classroom in a beautiful place, the Garden of Eden, and there they were to be instructed. But as we've seen so many times in the past, Adam and Eve did not want to go through the process. They didn't want to have to grow bit by bit. They wanted to take a shortcut. And the serpent promised them the shortcut. They disobeyed God. And now what it means to be human, as inadequate as it was before sin came into the world, it has now been twisted and corrupted almost beyond recognition. This is who we are as fallen human beings. The law gives us instructions as to how we are supposed to live. We're not supposed to kill each other. We're not supposed to lie to each other. We're not supposed to steal from each other. This is what it means to be human. But as Paul has made clear here and in other writings, we are not capable of keeping the law. We lack the ability to keep the instructions. What Paul writes in verse number 13, do not use your freedom as an opportunity to show what you really are like as human beings. This is what he means. We're not simply human. We're fallen human beings. But even if we were without sin, we are inadequate on our own. And if somehow we could all be purified and put back in the Garden of Eden and we could be free as Adam and Eve were free, we are not simply free from certain things, we are free to do certain things. And we are, we are to love one another. Our nature is so different from what was intended. It's so different from what we were made to be. We need the Spirit of God to live in us and to lead us so we can begin to live the way human beings are supposed to live. That's our problem. We're not living the way that we should live. And so the Lord willing, next Sunday, we will continue this, beginning with the verses that follow. Look, if you would, at verses 16 and 17. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. We have been made a particular way. This is what God intended us to be like. And yet, our nature does not want to do what God wants us to do. That's because of the fall. But in a profound sense, even if we were not, if we were without sin, we would still need the Spirit of God to lead us, to guide us and direct us. We can't do this on our own. I was about to say it would be nice if we could, but in fact it would not. 
because then we would feel independent. We would feel like we would have no need of God. We are creatures. He is the creator. On our own, we are not sufficient. We need him. But now that sin has come into the picture, we are really messed up. And so we need the Spirit of God to lead us. We need to listen to Him rather than to listen to ourselves. He knows what it means to be human. He, God created us. He knows what He intends us to be. We think we know what is best. In fact, we do not. The picture that comes to mind is of a child who thinks they know better than their mom or their dad. They think they know what is best for them. And the parents then are seen almost as cruel. Why won't you let me do what I want? Well, because that's not something that is good for you. That's not something that is healthy for you. Now that we are in union with Christ and we can call God our Father, He has put His Spirit in us to say, follow me, this is how human beings are supposed to live. And the first step as human beings is love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. The Lord willing, we will see this more as we go along in the weeks to come. Let's pray together. Father, it seems to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden that we have this this sense in us that we know better than you. And we wonder why you don't respond right away. We wonder why you have these laws, these commandments. And even in some dark moments, we might think that you hate us that you don't want us to enjoy our lives here on this planet. In fact, you know what is best for us. You made us. We are made in your image. And we cannot stand alone. Since sin has come into the world, we can't stand at all. But now, through new life in Christ, union with Christ, we have your Spirit We need to look to him to teach us what it means to be a human being. How I, as a human being made in the image of God, how I'm supposed to live and think and act. And it begins with love, self-giving love that we see in your son as he gave his all that we might have life. We thank you for the gift of your spirit and may he, in the days to come, speak to us. Remind us of these things we've heard today. May we meditate on them. We look forward by your grace to the Sundays to come as we work through what Paul writes to our Galatian brothers. We thank you for this day you've given us. We could come together to worship. We pray for those that aren't with us. For Jack in particular, you'd keep him safe. For Ziv and Oscar, the Simons, the Colburn Group, and others. We ask that your grace and your spirit would go with us as we leave this place today. 
We pray this through Jesus and in his name. Amen.